It is a joy to be here. Uh, I am so appreciative of Sovereign Grace, of Sovereign Grace music. Uh, We do many of these songs, and then other ones, I think, why aren't we doing that song? And so appreciate Bob and his whole family and the opportunity to be with you, worship, sing, and hopefully learn from God's Word together. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, your name is hallowed, and we pray just as we trust we have hallowed your name in song now just as much or more. We would hallow your name as we receive your word. I am mindful, Lord, of my sins and inadequacies and weaknesses, mindful that these brothers and sisters have come from, some of them, very far. And my great desire is that I would not give a stone or a snake when you mean to give them a loaf of bread and something to eat. So I pray, as John the Baptist would have us pray, that I might decrease and you would increase Would you help us? We don't ask that these next moments necessarily be the most important thing that ever happens in our lives or in our week or maybe not even in this day. But would you feed us once again from your word and may the effect, not of this conference or this session or this sermon, let alone this man, but of your word be great in our midst and in our ministries, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is almost 11 years to the day, and I I don't know that it is the exact day because I don't remember the exact day, but it's 11 years ago this August that I was ordained as a pastor. And I know we come from many different traditions. Maybe you don't use even the language of ordination and your process may be different. Uh, being in an old uh, Reformed denomination is quite a laborious process to be ordained. I hear the way some of you Baptists get ordained, and it sounds pretty nice. <laughs> Just kind of go to somebody and say, I want to be a pastor. Okay, meet with this pastor. All right. I know it's much more complicated. But I had to take, you know, not only seminary, but you have, I think, um, eight or nine or ten exams before our classes or our presbytery, think of them. Uh, I had to write papers, had to have psychological examinations and all the rest. And so it was a big deal. I was finally becoming a pastor and had our little ordination service. And I say little because it was little. I think there were, oh, three dozen people there. Half of them were related to me, and the other half just felt like they had to, and the others didn't know that that was the evening service that night. <laughs> and I remember that the very nice ladies at the church, and I wonder, what, what do we do? We haven't, I don't know if we've had one of these before. What do we do for an ordination service? We have funerals, and you have ham on buns, and we have weddings, and you know what to do, but what do you do here? So they said, we want to make you an ordination cake. I thought, okay. They said, what, what verse do you want us to put on, our, on your ordination cake? I said, this is getting very complicated. Is there going to be 
you know, a little John Calvin and you're going to cut through his head or something. And <laughs> here you go. There's a little piece of Luther and there's Katie and all the rest. But no, it didn't have any people, but it had, you know, I remember some flowers around it and it asked me, what do I want? Well, I thought, well, this is a lot of pressure to pick a, a verse that's going to be not only on my king, but eaten by the congregation. <laughs> Literally feeding them with the word of God. Sweet it was. So I chose 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And people ask me from time to time, well, do you have a life verse? That feels like a lot of pressure too. I don't want to pick a lame life verse. <laughs> you know, my, I just draw a blank, you know, once in a while. And people, I mean, they, they ask me to sign something. And they're like, oh, can you write a verse? And at that moment, it's like I had never read the Bible in my whole life. I can't, <laughs> I can't think of anything. And I'm like, I don't want to be the guy, John 3.16, really? <laughs> I don't respect you anymore. <laughs> Everyone. So this would be the closest thing to a verse that is giving me shape, purpose, form to how I see my work as a minister of the gospel. Let me read to you the surrounding verses. And this will be our theme for our next moments. Moments being sort of a euphemism for an hour. <laughs> Second Corinthians Chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves. But Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we think tonight about faithful to proclaim, about this ministry of gospel proclamation. I want us to think along three lines, three themes. The means, the manner, and the message of ministry. If you go to seminary, you too will learn alliteration. The means, the manner, and the message of this new covenant ministry. And this should be, I think, applicable for those of you who are responsible for preaching the word week in and week out, those of you responsible for leading in the ministry of the word through music, those of you who serve and minister the word in Sunday school and small group in your home or with your friends. There is something here, I believe, for all of us. 
So first of all, the means of this gospel. The means. The means is verbal proclamation. That is the title, faithful to proclaim. The means by which this ministry goes forth is by verbal proclamation. We see Paul in verse 5 making this clear. What we proclaim, we're speaking something. God works by his word and his spirit. As the church father Irenaeus said, they are the right and the left hand of God. The word and the spirit present at creation. You say, where are they present in Genesis 1? Well, you have the spirit hovering over the deep. And you have God, of course, creating by his speech. Let there be light and there's light. Or as uh, I think it was the theologian Larry the Cucumber said, God just went, and there it was. Got that for my kids. <laughs> Word and Spirit. The same means by which God created are the means by which He recreates life in the heart of a sinner. Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the Word of Christ. James 1, 18, of His own will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. There you see the connection between the Word and His creative power. You've heard and I'm sure have probably been dispelled of this myth that we can preach the gospel and use words if necessary, which is sometimes attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, um, which... You know, it's a fine saying, except that St. Francis didn't say it and he didn't live that way, and it's not true. But other than that, <laughs> it is, it is, uh, it, there's a, is a fine sentiment, I think, underneath it, perhaps. We adorn the gospel with our good works, but it's a confusion of categories. This gospel is the announcement of news, and it must be communicated through God's gift of human language. And so as we think about planning our worship services, we should not be ashamed that they are going to be centered around the spoken word. It is not to denigrate the the other senses, but it is to say that in this age, we are in the age of the ear, that faith comes by hearing the word of God. And if you want people to be converted in your ministry, and I trust that you all do, it's one of the One of the things, when I meet before the service with a few of our elders every week, that's one of the things we pray. Would today be the day of salvation for some here? If you want people to be converted, born again, regenerated, you must put the proclamation of the gospel front and center. Now, you can have people be changed in some way. You can have people be stirred. You can have people come to your church. You can have people really like your church. But if you want them to be born again and regenerated in your church, then it must be through and only through the proclamation of God's Word, through the gospel. There is no other way. And if pastor or worship leader, you get to that point in your ministry, point of desperation, you think, i I. I don't know what else to do except to give these people the word of God in prayer. Then that's pretty close to the heartbeat of your ministry. 
And if you step into the pulpit or behind the piano or microphone or flip the trans... You don't use transparency. If you use transparencies, you're probably not at the right conference. <laughs> but these are nice TVs here. These are some big TVs. I think I played Nintendo on one of these things. <laughs> um, cut that out of the recording. If you want people to be born again, you must give them the Word. If ever you come and you think, there's, and you know what you can do apart from the Word, then that's not the thing you should really be doing. There ought to be a point you say, these marriages, I don't know how to fix them. This, this intractable heart, I don't know how, how to get through. This teenager who's asleep, I, I don't know what, I can't turn it up to 11 anymore. Okay, I can't get this loud enough. What do I do? You have the Word of God and you have prayer. Faithful to proclaim. And you ought to think to yourself, especially those of you who are ministering the Word through music, and you notice how I'm putting that, ministering the Word through the sermon through music. You ought to think, if someone were to grow up in this church, say they're there for 15, 20 years, what truths would they know about God and the gospel just from what you sing? Can you say, well, this is just sort of pre-stuff, and then they'll really get... What would they know about God and the gospel just from what you sing? We must have a higher standard for our songs than, well, it's not heretical... I've, been talking to, I've talked to people before, worship leaders, who's like, oh, it's not that bad. I mean, it's mostly true if you look at it that way. You want to be thinking, what are we teaching? Admonish one another. Hymns, psalms, spiritual songs. This is part of the teaching ministry of the church, singing to each other. And what are you singing about? What are you teaching? What deep truths, simple truths, broad truths, high truths about God? We must give them the word. Don't just give them a testimony of what Jesus has done for you. Point them to the word of truth. Open a Bible. Wait for them to actually turn in their Bibles or power up their you know, gizmo or whatever they're doing or a little chip planted in their brain, or look on the screen, or whatever, but you want people to be looking at something, understanding that your authority, this is especially preachers, your authority does not come from you or because you can speak really forcefully. <laughs> okay? Anybody can be dramatic, but that it's coming from the Word. Are they looking? Are they following around? One of my concerns I have and I see the temptation in my own heart, especially for young men preaching, is I find sometimes the best stuff they do is when they're drifting farthest from the Word of God. What I mean is they get on a rant, they get on a riff, everyone's like, oh, yeah, give it to them, yeah, the guy, yeah, you know, hit him across the face, and yeah, that's hilarious, and they get out, and realize that that's when we didn't have our noses in the book. That, that was kind of his his deal. That was his shtick. That was his soapbox and really got people fired up and man, I love that. Is your best stuff coming when you are paying closest attention to the Word of God? This is where there is freedom and life and glory. It's here in the book. 
The words, people are born again by the seed of the Word of God. And this is what you're doing week after week, pastor, week after week, worship leader, is you are sowing. Sowing. You think of the parable of the sower and the soils. And it's often missed that, you think about it, that this sower, he's a really bad sower. (laughs) Why is the seed fought? What? There's seed in the... In the thorns? That's not a good idea. It's there and it's kind of sandy. Well, whatever. And then what's, what's the deal with the seed on the path? He's just walking on the concrete. Well, might as well give it a shot. He's a profligate sower. I think there's a lesson for us there. How, did this, how does the seed get in all of these seemingly bad places? Because the sower is just sowing. I don't know. That's concrete. Give it a whirl. <laughs> that what you think when you minister the word week after week? Just keep sowing. Just keep sowing. Just keep sowing. Just sow. Just see what happens. You don't know what 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 God is doing to break up that ground. You know, sometimes the word of God is just a little pebble in somebody's shoe. And they walk away and it seems like, well, that didn't do anything. And you don't know that for the rest of the day, that little thought, that verse, that message, that song, is just, they can't get it out. They're just rattling around a little rock that you stuck in their shoe. We don't have confidence, many of us, in the Word of God. There are so many ministry innovations gone wrong, gone down the wrong path for the simple reason that those planning the service lost confidence in the Word of God to do the work of God. And you think that you're there and all you have is the Word. All you got is a Word. It just feels like a little, there's a little straw and you know, you roll up the little straw paper and put it in there and just, you know, shoot little spit wads and someone gets it on the back of their head, a little spit wad. And you feel like that's all you got, Pastor. That's all you got, worship leader. Just a little spit wad of the Word. Just, and you see, there's people here with all their impenetrable postmodern fortresses and they're never going to believe and you just have a little... <laughs> well, no wonder why you rent the fog machine when that's all you got. <laughs> but brothers, you got hand grenades. You got hand grenades there and you just week after week you're just pulling the pin and just... Whew, just When's God going to let them blow? You're just launching them. That's the power of God's Word. You have power right here. It's, it's, it's not to be confident in our own abilities or confident in our own key changes, but to be confident in the Word of God. The Word called the heavens into existence. A Word called Abraham to the promised land. The Word gathered the people of Israel around Mount Sinai. The Word called the first Christian church into existence. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And this Word now spoken in the power of the Spirit is faithful to do the work of God among the people of God. If we would preach it, if we would teach it, if we would sing it. You see what, what Paul says here. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Literally, we, the hidden things of shame. Paul says, I have nothing to hide. I have no ulterior motives. I'm not out to make a buck. He says, we refuse to practice cunning. You see in verse 2. Refuse to 
Teach according to the way of the world and its craftiness. You understand the Greeks love their orators. They were the rock stars of the day. They love their rhetoricians. They love people who could put words together and draw a crowd and sound smart and look impressive. And they knew what to do. And Paul had no interest in preaching like this, no interest in worship like this. Now, Paul spoke Greek. He understood their poets. He was as smart as any of them. But when it came to preaching, he was decidedly countercultural. And he did not assimilate the popular forms of the day. He said, I want to preach no gimmicks, no frills, no tricks, no eloquence, the word of God straight up out in the open. And we should pay attention to Paul's example of a countercultural commitment to the preached word of God before we are quick to say, look, we live in a visual culture, people can't take discourse anymore. That used to work. You know, the Puritans, they didn't even, you know, they didn't have TV back then. They didn't even have iPhones back then. What did they do? They just, of course they could listen to sermons. People can't do it anymore. They, they, they can't take monologues. They need something. They need a picture. They need a visual. Look, to, to everyone who, who says, uh, Kevin, we, people have ears to hear, yes, but, they, but we also need something for them to see, something for them to taste, something for them to, to smell. We need to engage all of their senses in worship. I say yes and amen, and Christ provided for all of that. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. He gave us the drama. He gave us the video clip with baptism and the Lord's Supper to see the weekly or monthly or quarterly or however often to, to taste and to touch and to smell and to be assured that as surely as you eat this bread and drink this cup, so surely has Christ died for your sins and you proclaim his death until he comes again. Paul says we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. This means, friends, that the audience is not sovereign. Now, we are not indifferent I'm wearing clothes that are at least somewhat culturally appropriate for, you know, a middle-aged dad kind of person. Um, you know, we, we speak in a language and we use illustrations from a certain cultural context. So the audience is not irrelevant, but it is not sovereign. And as you think about planning your services, I encourage you, friends, to put that consideration far down the list. First thing, what are we doing to glorify God, to show reverence and awe to God? What are we doing to uh, use what the Bible tells us we ought to use in worship, in the, in the forms and the elements and the truth? And what are we doing to uh, rely on and learn from the tradition of Christians who have gone before? And what are we doing to soak the service in all sorts of prayer? And once you get way down the list, you can think about, oh, and oh yes, what, what will this audience think about it? It's only appropriate if you do all the rest. The word must determine the message, not the response to the word. And it happens every generation. People come along and say, the church is going to die. We don't change it. Right now. Like right now, now, now. Oh, no. We've got to change it. We've got to change everything. And look, they, they don't like that or they won't appreciate that or they don't they don't understand what a, a king is so we can't talk about a kingdom or they don't think about sin in that way and so we, we have to change it. Do not twist, hide, cover up any of the hard parts of the word of God. Paul says quite plainly, we do not tamper with it. 
Paul's a fastball pitcher. You know, that's just, just every, you know, week, okay? And there's the catcher, and he kind of puts down the two. No, I don't want the curve. Right? No, breaking ball, no. That, yep, the one, fastball, yep, that's what I do. Just here it comes, right down the middle of the plate. Boom, here it comes. The, the truth, an open statement of the truth. That's what the church needs to hear. We don't cut out the miracles because people can't believe in miracles. We don't disown sexual ethics because people think they're wrong. We don't get rid of hell because it turns people off. We don't do away with sin because it hurts our self-esteem. We don't throw away the uniqueness of Christ because it doesn't fly in today's world. People do not need watered-down Christianity or sermonettes for Christianettes. They need the Word (laughs) communicated in a thoughtful, winsome way without any tampering. We must not be ashamed of the gospel. Ashamed, that's kind of, you know, we put it on a t-shirt or we, you know, it's a nice saying, bumper sticker, but you think about it. We, we are getting fast to the point in our culture where you will have to consider whether or not you are ashamed of the gospel or whether you will be ashamed with those who associate, remember, with the gospel. Remember, Paul was often talking about, and he was not ashamed of my chains. You're not ashamed about the truth of God's word. Yes, there is certainly a need to understand the times, but I would argue a far greater need to understand the Word. Paul says he declared the message in an open statement of the truth. What separates Christianity from the cults? There's no, no secrets. There's no sort of weekend ritual that you go to and you learn some secret and you can't tell anybody else. It's just news. There's no secret formula. There's no magic key change. There's no shade of lighting. There's no minor key, major key alternation that somehow revival breaks forth. The secret is there's no secret. You just keep preaching. You keep teaching. You keep singing God's Word. When it comes to the truth on Sunday morning, clarity is king. This is why, and please understand what I'm saying and not saying, this is why art makes bad preaching. Not art, there's some guy here named Art. He's like, oh man, I'm... <laughs> what? My whole call, no. The thing, art. And preaching makes bad art. Poetry makes bad preaching. Movies make bad preaching because they deal with subtlety with reading between the lines, with picking up nonverbal cues. That's not bad. It's just a different medium of discourse. When you, get, when you, you know, read a really rich poem, you're supposed to sit around with your friends and say, what do you think that line means? What, what was that imagery about? Or you get done with a movie and you think, now what, that scene at the beginning, how do you think that connected at the end? And what was that little, that little girl doing? And what was that boy doing? He was seeing dead people and stuff. And I don't know what was happening over here. And you're supposed to talk about it. And that, that's what a, a good piece of art does. N- n- no artist that I know like it or expect that you go up to a piece of art hanging on the wall and say, dude, that's like Romans 8, 28 right there. No, they, they, you're, you're supposed to, what does it do? What does it feel? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a, a, new, a nuance, a subtlety to it. And this is different from Sunday morning. You don't want people to leave your church Sunday morning saying, that was cool. How, what was that about, man? 
what did you think about it? It was really weird, and I don't know how, how that song kind of fit with that song. And the sermon was just, whoa, it was way over there. So you want clarity to be king. We are not after subtlety on Sunday morning or refinement or even good grades with all your preaching professors, but a clear, open declaration of the truth that we might commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Isn't that what you want at the end of the day, at the end of the year, at the end of your life? Whether it's a Bible study or Sunday school or speaking up for Jesus in the classroom or sharing the gospel on the bus or preaching on Sunday, you want a clear conscience to say, I was not afraid. I wasn't obnoxious. I wasn't sort of you know, wearing it on my sleeve. Everybody hates me because I'm a Christian. But I wasn't afraid. You know what, you know what boldness is? Boldness is being clear in the face of fear. That's what you see with the apostles in the book of Acts. Boldness. It's not a decibel thing. It's not an intensity thing. It means you're clear in the face of fear. And you get to the end of your life and you can say with a clear conscience, I gave these people the truth about their sin. I gave them the truth about heaven and hell. I gave them the truth about Jesus Christ. I gave them the truth about the good news of the gospel. And we sang it every Sunday and we heard it every sermon and it shaped everything we were doing. It was right there as plain as I could make it. That, friends, is the means by which we do this gospel ministry. Verbal proclamation. Second, the manner and I understand that first point was, was longer, so just I'm, I'm adjusting accordingly. <clears throat> I was like, at a, uh, like, when I was at a conference a couple months ago with Alistair Begg, and he was preaching, and he said, I have three points, and the first one will be terribly long, and I'm sure we won't even get through to the third one, so you figure it out. Which was good, and that's what he did. So I thought, that's, that's the way to make a living. Connect the dots. Second, the manner as a servant. The means, verbal proclamation, the manner as a servant. Paul often talks in his letters about being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ or a slave to Christ Jesus. This doesn't mean his goal in life was to please the church. It means that in service to God, he was intent on serving others. The elder, the pastor, is a shepherd There is authority in being a shepherd, but to be a shepherd is one who serves, who protects, who guards, who feeds, who cares. God is not looking for any of us to create our own kingdoms or our own empires. He has one kingdom, and we are but stewards in it. Your ministry and my ministry will be most powerful when we are most humble. I will be listened to most when I am most loving. You will lead best when you are most like a servant. This comes from St. Gregory the Great from the 6th century, the book of pastoral rule. He says, Those who preside over others should consider not their rank, but the equality of their condition. Moreover, they should revel not in ruling over others, but in helping them. For indeed, our ancient fathers are not remembered because they were rulers of men, but because they were shepherds of flocks. Often, however, a pastor, a leader, swells with pride by virtue of being placed in a position of authority over others. 
And it happens that while he is encircled with immense favor internally, he loses his sense of truth. Forgetful of who he is, he scatters himself among the voices of others and believes what he hears them say about him rather than what he should discern about himself. Such was the case with King Saul. He had previously seen himself to be of little consequence, but after he received temporal authority, he began to think of himself as greater than everyone else. In a wonderful way, when he was small to himself, he was great to the Lord. But when he thought of himself as great, he became small to the Lord. It's the lesson that we see from the kings of Judah. Remember King Uzzah? There's this phenom and military success and prosperity in the kingdom. And there's this haunting verse. I think it's Second Chronicles chapter 20. It says, he was greatly helped until he became strong. And, and couldn't that sadly be written over so many pastors, so many churches, so many Bible studies, so many worship bands? He was marvelously helped. She was greatly helped until she became strong. Paul presented himself not as the apostolic Lord over the Corinthians, but as their servant. And so he says, I, I came not to preach myself. He was not interested in a personal following or a personality cult. He wasn't in the ministry for fame or money. He wasn't a preacher so he could ride hobby horses or pronounce all his pet peeves. One of the things that I've prayed often, and I confess to you, I've prayed it often, and I wonder if I really mean it, but I just keep on praying it. I prayed from the first time I was in the ministry 11 years ago. Lord, don't give me success until I don't want it anymore. And I would pray that. And I hope you know, I mean, it, it's okay. Sometimes you have prayers. You say, okay, Lord, I'm praying that. I'm not really sure if I mean it, but it's a good prayer, so I'm going to... You know, pray it. It's like St. Augustine who one time said, Lord, give me chastity, but not quite yet. That's, that's our hearts sometimes. But that's the attitude, I hope, of a servant. Pastors, do you think of what you do on Sunday morning? Is your stage, your pulpit? Or is it about this? And those of you who lead, are you servants to the Word of God? Or are you the show? When I went to Gordon Conwell, Walt Kaiser was the president there, and he had this joke, which you probably won't appreciate, but he liked to tell it all the time. He said, what's the difference between worship leaders and terrorists? He said, you can negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> Just let the reader understand. <laughs> it applies is that the way you approach it? This is what we're doing because it's my way. Paul's goal was not to preach Paul, but Christ. Let one of your chief confessions, you put it right up there with the Apostles' Creed, with the Nicene Confession, whatever else, with your church's statement of faith, make this one of your chief confessions from John chapter 1. It comes from John the Baptist. He confessed and did not deny, but freely confessed. I am not the Christ. Let that be one of your chief confessions of faith. John said, uh, this, the church is the bride. This is the groom. I'm just in the bridal party. One of the attendants. And what's the job of the attendant? 
You just don't fall over. Just don't get in the way. <laughs> and some, some church leaders sometimes, we're, I mean, we're that obnoxious sort of guy in the bridal party who's, you know, here comes the bride down, you know, winking. You know, boo. <laughs> that wouldn't be cool. Man, it's not your show. You just stand here. Don't forget the ring. Don't, you know, zip up. Just stand. Just don't <laughs> do anything. And then we, because it's about the bride and the groom. It's about Christ and in the church. And your servant to, to help increase the, the love that the, the bride has for this perfect groom. Not to be making eyes. Say, well, let me take a look at me. He's a pretty good groom, but have you heard this whammy bar? <laughs> have you heard me play the congas? It's a djembe, and I know how to spell it. <laughs> you think it's about you, or it's about me? We're just part of the bridal party. You want people to leave with an overwhelming sense, as Jacob said, surely God was in this place. Calvin says, he that would preach Christ alone must of necessity forget himself. And so our aim, and I'm sure we all miss the mark, and we have to keep careful watch over our hearts. Our aim is, is to present ourselves as servants only, not the star. Pointers, not the point. You've got you to wrestle with your heart. I do. I mean, our pastoral interns sometimes will say, Kevin, now what do you do? I'm, I'm going to go preach. And uh, how did you get past you know, feeling like part of what you're doing is getting up because you want people to, to look at you and listen to you. And how'd you get past that pride? I say, I'll let you know when I do. I say, being aware of it is, is the first step. And you pray against it. And you ask the Lord to humble you, which he always answers. <laughs> you, we all have that wrestling Say, Lord, I do. I, I, want, I want to serve. I want to just I want you to be the center. I don't, I don't need a star. It's not, it's not American Idol, okay? It's not that then we all the judges and some. I know no one watches that show anymore, but I just heard about it once everyone stopped watching it. And <laughs> that's, that's not the point. And sometimes we think whether you're a pastor or you're a worship leader, that's what it's like. You know, just every week is sort of, how'd I do? And did I get how many pats on the back and how many people liked it? And did how many hands went up? Or if you're not at that kind of church, how many hands went out of the pockets? Or, or <laughs> what happened? Did people seem to smile? No, did they not frown as much as usual? What? It just becomes me and how am I doing? That's not being a servant. Means the manner, finally the message. The message we proclaim Verse 5, Jesus Christ is Lord. Now we know from the rest of the New Testament that Paul preached the whole counsel of God, so don't think all he ever said was Jesus Christ is Lord. This is simply one way to summarize the gospel truth. He says in 1 Corinthians 2 that he came and desired to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the point is, he came to them not with a nebulous kind of spirituality, not with a vapid moralism, but to preach Jesus Christ as Lord, as their Lord, as one who had authority over their lives. 
The reason we trust this word is because the word of God is the verbal expression of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so we submit to this and it has rule over our lives because this is the word of the living Christ who is Lord over all. The message we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus and him crucified. Is that in your singing? Does it shape your service? I think a lot of us could do more to think about this. How does the gospel, not just, okay, we're singing about the gospel, we're preaching the gospel, how does it shape? There, is, is there a gospel kind of logic to your service? An, an Isaiah 6 kind of progression. We come face to face with God and we adore Him and we worship Him. We see Him high and lifted up. And then when we see Him, there is a moment of, of confession, realization, our sin relative to His holiness. And we pray. That's why churches for centuries would have some kind of prayer of confession, whether it's spoken or recited or sung, something. Now that we've come and had this encounter with God, we're aware of our sin. He then ministers His, his grace, assures us of His pardon then God speaks to us in his word and there is a response, here I am, send me. Does your whole service have a kind of gospel logic, this call and response, this back and forth as you speaking to God, God speaking to you? Or is it just a kind of, well, this is where the slots fall in the bulletin and no one's really given it much thought how we put this together? that Jesus Christ and Him crucified ought to shape the sermon and the singing and, in fact, the very shape and structure of what we're doing. And so when we think of Christ and Him crucified, we think of this metaphor that appears in verses 4, 5, and 6, the singular metaphor of light. That's what we're trying to do Make light shine through verbal proclamation. Light shine through verbal proclamation. Now in one sense, unbelievers can see Christ, they can hear, they can comprehend. But Paul's talking about sight in a different way. He says they're not really seeing. You're not really seeing until you see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Until you find him overwhelmingly magnificent and attractive. That's sight and everything else is blindness. And how often we move in the opposite direction from the Apostle Paul. We say somebody is not believing the gospel message. Something's wrong with the message. Something's wrong with the the set. And Paul said they're not believing the gospel message because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Of course, it's not to make us indifferent or sloppy or... Uh, just absolutely careless by any means. But it's to say we must have this as theological ballast, otherwise we are going to sail off course. Some people will not believe what you sing and what you preach because they do not have eyes to see it. When, when they, I'm preaching on Acts 14 this, this Sunday, and they go to Iconium, and it says the city was divided. And some of them believed and some of them hated more and more you have to be prepared for that you're not prepared to do ministry somebody's going to say where has this news been all my life and somebody's going to say that is the most ridiculous and someone else is going to say that is positively wicked a God who's 
as a hell? A God who says that about sex? This is the challenge in our day. Not just Christianity is silly. That was sort of the modern problem. You know, science says Christianity doesn't work or that's not true, and you, you're kind of foolish for believing it. But now it's, it's even worse than that. It's not just foolish, but it's positively abhorrent. Some of the things that the Bible says that our world does not want to hear. Of course, we don't have to say those things with <clears throat> veins bulging. We say it with a tear in our eye and a broken heart. But friends, we still must say it. And some will not believe because the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. But for those whom God has ordained to see, the great joy and what all of us get to do is to be the instrument of this miraculous sight. This savoring for Christ, this spiritual tasting of the gospel, that Christ now explodes on our taste buds as irresistibly glorious in all of His tenderness and compassion and power and humility and mercy and suffering and death and resurrection so that the only explanation for those who do not see what we see is that they do not have eyes to see because if they did, they would fall down and they would worship and that is how we must preach and that is how we must sing, and that is how we must serve. Do you see? Are you so structuring, so preaching, so planning, so singing, so that people week after week will have through their ears an indescribable sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Glory. Because at the heart of this proclamation is a person. Jesus Christ, the Creator, all things created by Him, through Him, and for Him. We see this Christ prefigured as the one who would crush the serpent's head, as the chosen seed of Abraham, as the snake lifted in the desert, as the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. Do you show them this Christ, this one who is a lion from the tribe of Judah, a prophet like Moses, a king like David, a priest like Melchizedek. Are you showing them this Christ, long ago predicted, prophesied, arrived, fulfilled? This one who left the glory of heaven to be born of a lowly virgin, came to be with us to assume our nature, though he was the radiance of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You show him that Christ, this Christ who cared for the least of these, this Christ in a boat on the countryside, in the synagogue, in the crowds, teaching the kingdom of God, teaching not as the scribes and the Pharisees, but as one who has authority. Do you show them this Christ who calmed the sea and walked on water and cast out demons and brought back the dead to life and turned the water into wine? This Jesus who with such compassion wept at the death of his friend Lazarus, and loved the little children and befriended the friendless and served his disciples when he knew they would all desert him. Some of us have not had the guts to actually give people more of God because we didn't think it would work. Well, it might. Christ is magnetic. 
This Christ, full of glory, full of suffering, this Christ who knew what it was to hunger and thirst, to be tired and disappointed and betrayed and tempted, this Christ who faced the most constant accusation, rejection, misunderstanding, this Christ turned over to the police by his closest friends, tried on trumped-up charges, this Christ who felt the, the thorns on his brow and the whip on his back, this Christ who felt the nails in his hands and whose lungs collapsed as he hung there on the cross. Do you give them this Christ who suffered, who died, who sustained in his body the whole wrath of God against the sins of the world and yet in his dying breath said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And in his dying breath looked out for his beleaguered mother and in his dying breath confessed his own God-forsakenness, crushed for our sins, bruised for our iniquities. And are you showing them in your sermons and in your songs this Christ who three days later rose from the dead, this Christ who ascended, this Christ who is seated now, exalted at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, in all stages of his humiliation and his exaltation, are you giving them that word, that theology, a Christ who condescended, who was made incarnate, who ministered among us his death, resurrection, ascension, session, exaltation. Do you sing and do you tell and do you show your people the glory of Christ in every one of those stages? Even, do you know that word, his session? That's what Presbyterians call an elder board because they need special words. A session, it, but theologically, the session of Christ is when he sat down. You don't think of it, you think, well, death, resurrection, maybe ascension, uh, you know, if we go to one of those churches, but death, res do you know that Christians for a long time have celebrated the session of Christ when he sat down? Because when do you sit down? When does mom sit down? Well, moms don't sit down, but if they do, it's at 10.30 at night, the dishes are done, the kids are in bed, and HGTV is on, and they just... <laughs> And they don't sit down until they're done because they're not going to get up. And you sit down and it's a glorious thing because it means your work is over. And so the glory of Christ that he sat down at the right hand of God the Father to be exalted there forevermore and to think that now our Christ, forever an incarnate Christ, that a man, same flesh, Resurrected now, but a man like us of same nature now rules in heaven. The God-man. Show them this Christ. Sing of this Christ. Pray in the name of this Christ. Savor this Christ. And help your people to see. And proclaim that the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, that this God, through His Word, and shine in your hearts to give you the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a great salvation. If nothing else, through these feeble words, we ask that you would, in the power of your word, Invigorate us, inspire us, give us renewed confidence to believe 
and the power of the word of God to do the work of God. Make us faithful to proclaim it, to love it, to savor it, and to help people by your grace see it and believe. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.